Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About the Weather. Political discussion from the outside may look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam, and this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk news and politics. Yeah. All right. All right. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm okay. Um, I've been cat sitting for the last few days. I've nice. never had uh, never had a pet before. I actually, I had rats. Uh, I used to keep rats um, quite a long time. They're beautiful creatures, but they're also quite a lot of work. This cat is not a lot of work. No, they're really not. They're fucking easy. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, that was. I saw one very funny thing on the news that had me in stitches. Um, which, you know, in, going into another lockdown, obviously, you know, you're finding any comedy that you can. But they were talking they were talking to people on the news about how they bought stock up ready to sell um, because they thought everything was going to be better. And then the news yeah. decided that the best person to talk to this, the best example of this, was a man with a Christmas card shop. And I just couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> I just couldn't stop oh, laughing no. at this. Because, like, I don't like buying cards anyway. And it's just like, oh, the dream's dead, boys. Shut her down. It's like hordes <laughs> of sad... Soot covered, soot and glitter covered men come out of the glitter mines of the Christmas card factory. We joke, but you know it's it, it's all too easy to walk past the kind of men with no legs on the corner doing scrawling Hallmark greetings <laughs> in graffiti <laughs> on a wall, you know, down by the corn exchange. You see them there, and you never know. I mean, they 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 do say that up to a third of Christmas card retailers um, end up on the streets. Yeah. Yeah, they do. It's and just, it's it's a sad, it's a pipeline, really. All those giant teddy bears. What's going to happen to them? They'll have to go <laughs> on the game. Nest. They'll have to go on the game. <laughs> but yeah, I saw that. That, that did oh. make me laugh. But um, the other stuff that I saw this um, in the last couple of days really didn't make me laugh, which was, um, you remember like when we did um, the stuff on the Order of the Nine Angles and, you know, that fash occult link? And yeah. It was, I think it was yesterday, um, a guy called Harry Vaughan, 18-year-old, son of a House of Lords clerk, was spared prison sentence despite having thousands of anti-Semitic, neo-Nazi, they said satanic, but that is incredibly reductive. It's not satanic. It's different kind of a cult. (laughs) But um, he had loads of that kind of stuff. And child porn. Um, but you know he didn't. Why do they always have like well, child porn? Nine them? Angles stuff is like it's in, it's kind of encouraged. It's like it's transgressive and it's nasty. Do you know what I mean? It's all it's all horrible culty shit. But um, luckily, not a single anti-Semitic trope was found, so he is still <laughs> out and about. Oh, so th- he's fine. oh, thank God! I was I was about I was about to ask: Was he using any kind of uh, shadowy puppet master tropes. No, no, he was just really he was just planning to bomb a school. That really it's fine. would be too much. Yeah. Oh, thank God. Yeah. That's good. Um, but so, I'm not sure so, what about so, this um this this um Twickenham based white A star student from a grammar school called the Tiffin Grammar School house son of a House of Lords clerk. No. I don't know what anything about this kid that why he didn't go to prison. <laughs> I can't think of a single reason why this white son of a House of Lords clerk. <sighs> but yeah, Tiffin Grammar School. <laughs> Good lord! I know. Yeah, I, know. I used to live near. Tw- I used to live near Twickenham. It's um, I'm sure there are like nice people there, but I mean that's isn't that um, uh, Vin- the, Vin- elect- the ones who elected Vince Cable? Um, is it? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I believe that's his. That was his constituency. Yeah. So, so mm. yeah. 
We should have known. We should have known. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about the way in general that that's been covered. It's like virtually every single press outlet all talking about, you know, he's a straight-A student, you know, went off the rails, went down a dark path on the internet. They did, you know, specify some ages. Like, he started this when he was 14. So it's not been, like, a recent thing that he recently got tricked into. Um, he's got, um, I think he's, they said he's got Asperger's, but that hasn't stopped. I think there was, like, a black teenager who went to prison for, was it that um, that horrible law where it was, like, one of his friends stole a phone, but because it was one of his friends, he ends up going to prison as well. There's, um, I mean, is that America or here? Here. I can't remember the rule, but the law. But you know, like when they punish the whole gang of people who are around. I yeah, because I mean, it's it's um, it's Rico in America, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it's a different um, figure. I can't whereby, realize. if you can be proved to be a member of an organization, but anyway, then anything um, that that organization does, yeah, yeah. But that black kid was autistic, and he went to prison. And this one had child porn and a bunch mm. of terror stuff. Um, but you know, he's fine because he's a straight A student. And all of them talking, you know, straight A student. One of them said, like, the um. The with his labour supporting mother. <laughs> it's like maybe that's where he got the idea. <laughs> <Have> you, of <laughs> course, I was looking for the missing link here, yeah. and you know, trying to try to find it. Um, I'm just having a look on the uh, on on BBC News. Uh, they've got a picture of what I assume is his uh, desktop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's 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 have a look. Okay, he's got a pair of like Beats esque headphones, so off brand. That's a warning sign. Uh, there's a USB, several of those, you know, Coke, Coke glasses, Coke shaped glasses. There's a big like orange tin of what looks like energy drink. There's a, a, a tray of change and links Africa, uh, <laughs> links Africa, a 10 pound note and a post-it note. Yeah, no, they should have known this for a long time ago. <laughs> All these warning signs. This is, uh, this is, this is, this is definitely. Well, the Labour supporting something. mother probably supported it. Um, <laughs> Because you know she probably she or she enabled it certainly yeah, obviously. I mean, through her use of through her use of tropes. Let's let's actually move on to to that because I mean I think we will end up talking in more in depth about the EHRC report uh, later on, mm-hmm. uh, maybe in a few couple of weeks. Um, but I think we talk a, uh, about the kind of aftermath of of, of that. Um, that uh, Jeremy Corbyn, previous leader of the Labour Party. Uh, has been suspended um, based on uh, not entirely sure because even the people who are suspending him are not quite sure. Um, well, no, he said he said, said he said <clears throat> that there are some parts of the media that overstated anti-Semitism, and he is disgusting for saying that because when Simon Heffer said that he was going to reopen Auschwitz, that wasn't overstating, not at all. So he better be suspended. It, <laughs> There's a there's a weird kind of um, I mean it's this it, I feel ex- I felt exactly the same when that uh, when all the stuff kind of came out um, I felt exactly the same way as I did through all the kind of um, upsurges in um, focus on anti-Semitism within within Labour when the media decided that it was it was something to be to be focused on in that part of the, the Corbyn cycle um, there was this whole depending on who you're you're looking at or depending on who you're 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 hearing talking corbyn goes from kind of ill-judged to unadvised to 
uh, an outright anti-Semite. That that is yeah. still that is still stated openly that this proves he was an anti-Semite. Uh, there's no reference to anything in the actual thing, um, but then that gets picked up and then talked about on other on other programs, and it, it spirals out from there. And then the assumption is there for next time that, yeah. of course, Corbyn has been proved. It's been proved. Mm-hmm. Uh, anti-Semitism has been proved. It absolutely, and as you say, like. What he said about the exaggeration is 100% true. Mm-hmm. How could it not be? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, he didn't he didn't specify like specifics. He just said it was like, exaggerated. But by definition, looking at the claims that were made about uh, the Labour Party and Corbyn during the kind of last five years, by definition, that has to be exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you think that the lived experience of Simon Heffer, who, as far as I know, is not Jewish, saying that he believes wholeheartedly, his lived experience, leads him to believe that Corbyn is going to reopen Auschwitz, has to, by definition, be exaggerated. Yeah. And uh, frankly, like, the um, the polls that say that, that Jewish people felt under threat from a Labour government, I'm sorry, that, that has to be exact. I, I, I have to explore that further. There's no further explanation. What is it that made you feel so un- under threat? Yeah. What like what what was it that was said? What was yeah. it that, that was there? I, I, I need I need more information rather than just kind of like engaging with it, saying a couple of sentences and then and then skipping off. Yeah. You know, like I, I don't Yeah. I just don't it's it's like this eternally revolving roundabout this hall of mirrors where every time you try and move in a particular direction there's a a, a blockage because there's no actual communication and and it just made me feel the same way as as i did whenever anti-semitism would come up it like as a major topic in in the media which was this isn't about actual actually discussing this this isn't about um like what arguments are there this isn't about rhetoric. This is about power. Yeah. The people who get to say things are the ones who decide what a thing is. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's just frustrating. I, I think we'll go into the HRC report maybe in, in yeah. detail in yeah. the future, but, but it's just. As like a summation, like. As, as far as, the as, people, far as Starm is concerned. The people who aren't, who don't have solidarity with Jeremy Corbyn at the moment, who aren't on his side with regards to this, are fucking cowards. Like Owen Jones snivelling it's just well the thing is I start, I, I balk at getting that annoyed at Owen Jones because he always does this he's not as he always does this do you know what I mean it's not a surprise he wasn't really on, on board with Corbyn ever um but yeah peop, all the people who are like I don't, oh, I don't think he wasn't on board I don't think he, he wasn't, wasn't until after 2017 I just think it that's not as important no, but I just don't think that's as important to him. And you can tell by the way he uses exclusions. He starts, I mean, frankly, he started uh, the last couple of days on Twitter, started saying the same kinds of things that yeah. um, kind of equivocating media people would have done beforehand. Yeah. Focusing on a completely different part of the argument. Yeah. Well, 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 he didn't apologize. It's yeah. like, was he asked to apologize? Yeah. Like, well, we can't discount the, uh, the... It's just like, that's not really what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Without having to access to the mythical group mind of all Jewish people mm-hmm. in Britain, we don't know that. We mm-hmm. can't... Dis- like, it's impossible to discuss that. We wouldn't be able to. Mm. So what are we actually talking about? What we're talking about is the fact that Corbyn was suspended for 
nondescript reasons. Firstly, it was for, um, what was it? Uh, not a, Well, it was disagreeing with the statement. It, it's not clear exactly who made the decision, whether it was actually the leader's office or whether it was um, other admin people in the, in the Labour Party HQ. Yeah. It's not clear what he was actually suspended over, whether it was the report itself, whether it was... Because, again, people had their own axe to grind. Mm-hmm. People were sure this was... Um, this was because, oh, he's been proven anti-Semite, so therefore he's been suspended. It absolutely wasn't. There was nothing to indicate that. But at the same time, was it about what he said? Because then you have the deputy leader, Andrew Lorena, coming out and saying, well, actually, what he said was true, but it was just uh, at the, an inopportune time. Yeah. So now are we just talking about politeness? Now are we just talking about um, how you conduct yourself? Was it mes- Is it messaging? Yeah. Like, what is it? No one can get a grips on this thing. And it's been a, a characteristic of the entire debate, of the entire thing, that nobody but nobody can actually get a grip on what they are trying to prove or not prove, other than with the uh, complaints process, which, from the brief uh, outline I've read of the points of the report, seems to have been the absolute opposite, that if there was leadership interference in complaints about anti-Semitism, it was to speed them up. That's what exposes the actual kind of proper terrain of this, which is yeah. that it, it is about the person speaking rather than what they're actually saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's ah, uh, mm. but yeah, Sorry, we'll, we'll we'll talk about we'll <laughs> we'll talk about um the HRC at length probably uh, a later date, based probably based on what yeah. they do what they decide to do with Corbyn. But um, yeah, back to what I was saying before you went on a rant about that. Um, with we've had like quite a week of coverage of fash being quite positive <laughs> like being this straight a student with all of his child porn um on one side and then on um radio four i think it is um we had an episode of untold with grace dent where she went to have a chat with some lovely men who've got a nice new hobby of border control um where the main guy was just, you know, he's just your average guy. He's just like an out-of-work wedding DJ, just looking for stuff to do, really, to keep himself busy because of lockdown. Um, just a charitable guy, worried that these migrants are coming over in boats are in danger, that they don't, these boats don't look very safe. And, oh, no, actually, no, no, he's convinced that there's like a murderous wave of migrants coming over to kill everybody, pretty much. Him and all of his little men, that's what they were all fucking saying, but, like, after about five seconds. Did you listen to this programme? I did not, no. I saw the uh, accompanying BBC story. Yeah, um, the story that was written by the producer, um, Sue Mitchell. uh, Sue Sue Mitchell, who has some uh, questionable interactions on social media with um, uh, far-right forces. Yes. I think, I don't think I've ever seen um, coverage of anti, like explicitly active anti-migrant forces that hasn't had that kind of, at the very least... A kind of hand wringing tone yeah. to it, yeah. You know, like oh, with this this bad person, and obviously, I mean, the, the classic thing is, well, I'm going to live with this neo-Nazi for a week and see what he's all about. Mm. Well, he seems like a good guy. Of course, his views are abhorrent, and I would never, no, never, never. But yeah, but yeah, you know, he's 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 deeper than I first thought. He has a family, as yeah. if that somehow <laughs> makes a difference. <laughs> but I've um, it, this. This is the coverage you give to a local charity. Yeah, one hundred percent. This is this is bringing in big society language, 
to describe something that essentially wants to um, stop my like stop desperate migration. Yeah, not it kind of tries to put the emphasis on oh we're stopping traffickers, but there's no way of separating those two things in realities. So it is about stopping um, black and brown people yeah coming to British shores. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, it's the thing that was just getting me is like. I imagine most of the people involved in the making of this program are just pretty bog standard libs. Um, but Sue Mitchell, I am like going on her interactions on Twitter and it's seeing as she's a producer of the show and it was her idea. <clears throat> I'd say she's got some pretty fucking horrifying views. And the main thing that I was getting from this was that there's. It's not enough that people don't hire racists at places like the BBC. They need to specifically hire anti-racists because they, these kind of fuck-ups keep on happening and you end up, like, you've got this example which didn't get that much traction really um, and, you know, it went out and there was a little bit of complaining about it but nothing will really ha- happen because of it. But then on the other hand, you end up with programmes like Chopped on Sky <clears throat> which... There was, I can guarantee there was not a single, there was not a single person on there who has an even base understanding of racism because they've ended up having to drop an entire show because the person who, I'm going on the fact that they've cancelled the entire show now, I'm pretty certain that the guy who won it or the guy who got up to the final, he's the one with the fucking Heil Hitler tattoo on his fucking face. That they just didn't oh, it was notice. The, the SS tattoo and the and the. I don't ATA, think he had. I don't it? think he had an SS yeah. tattoo. He had like um, the number code for like um, white pride, and he had eighty eight and shit like that. Um, and no one really noticed it. And you know, I you know Lee Mack doesn't need to be an anti-fascist, but you'd think that it'd be at least at least a producer somewhere in that whole team. Not a single person mentioned that this is going to be an issue, and then it leads to them having to drop a whole show, which costs a lot of money. So just on like. Just on a basic money thing, they need to start hiring some fucking anti-racists. I I don't know how I feel about this. There's there's way too this because this isn't this isn't trying to introduce overt um, fascism into the mainstream. This is assuming fascism is the mainstream. Yeah. This is this this article and an accompanying radio thing is assuming that this kind of attitude is by definition um, beneficent. Yeah, but the problem is you know, there's not I mean, a single he, person on the production team there who went, this is not, this is this is sus the way we're doing this. I, I, I mean, I, th- I still think that obviously on the surface, I think I think genuinely think this is path breaking. I genuinely don't. I, I, no, genuinely I, I agree. Seen something I agree, but I like, don't think it would have happened like if there had been a sing- if there had been another what, producer there who who if there was a, another producer there who was explicitly not racist, or if Grace Dent wasn't a racist. I think all of them were like at the very least low level racists who made this program. And the problem is, you need to have. I think I, I d- but what. what what I mean is that, like, I think this has to be seen uh, explicitly as a manoeuvre to try and um, platform more of this, more of this stuff for whatever reason. Whether it's because of that old, like, liberal fear that they're not kind of platforming quote real people, but I, this this feels like it goes beyond that. This feels like 
they are actively trying to advance this particular cause, which I, I don't think I've seen before, and raises questions of exactly how much more of this we're going to see yeah. and how many people within the BBC. And like you expect it from other media organisations, largely because a lot of the more successful ones are built on a kind of yeah. skirting that line between right-wing populism and kind of a respectable uh conservatism yeah and of course they fall foul of the the like the the right wing the far the hard right line more mm-hmm. often than not yeah but there's still a line that you couldn't cross there was the the cockroaches comment from um yeah what's her face um katie hopkins uh what is her name katie hopkins from katie hopkins um that was a line that shouldn't be crossed. There was the um, sourced uh, Aryan unity chart that they put in on the Sun website. That was a line that shouldn't be crossed, and they recognised that by removing it. But this, this seems like actively going for it. This seems like actively, and I think you have to ask questions now about exactly who in the BBC and what they have, like what other political inclinations they have. I'm absolutely proposing political monitoring of the BBC. Oh yeah, 100%. because I mean, let's face it. That's what that's what the right are doing. Yeah. Well, no, I I complete I completely agree. I think the um the I don't think it goes any higher than that show. Do you know what I mean? Like the plan for this thing. I think it was. I think this woman is is a racist. I think for now. And she was taking yeah one hundred. Sure. Yeah, I think basically with the construction of the BBC, I yeah. think at the very very top you've got some real fucking horrifying views, and then at the and look and then you've got some some around this woman's level who have got some horrible views, and then in the middle you've got mainly liberals. And the problem is when you've got mainly liberals, they don't fucking stop them because they think. Because they do think what you said, like, oh, maybe we've got a platform these views. Maybe this is authentic Britain. And then with the migrant boat thing, it was such a thing that got literally every single one of the channels out um, out on the water in the summer. They were all super into it. So it feels like an even easier one to go for, if you know what I mean. If you're mm. going to go in a direction to try and platform those views, it would be the one to... The... You have to ask whether there's a... You, ha- you have to ask whether there's active neo-nazi entryism being performed on the bbc i mean it sounds it sounds hyperbolic but i mean you know you've as you've said national action and order of the nine angles have practiced entryism on the on the army on the Mm -hmm. police um and on teenagers online like it wouldn't be too far to stretch because i mean in a way i feel like that kind of thing they'd almost be shut out of an lbc because who would tell the difference yeah yeah, you know they're not like the, the act. You know, like if if uh, Julia Hartley Brewer ended up being a member of National Action, that would probably harm her brand. Yeah, despite say, despite being very closely aligned with that kind of worldview. Mm. Um, I think you had yeah. We actively have to ask how far the BBC is is has has been infiltrated by people who have this have this particular agenda. Mm. So for our main topic this week, um, I thought we'd talk about the uh, the response to coronavirus because we've kind of covered coronavirus, our own personal experiences of it. Mm-hmm. But there's only so much you can really talk about on a week to week basis. Um, and I started thinking about the kind of long term. I mean, we've been in lockdown now for seven months or forever um, since or a I week think about the 16th of March. It could be a week. Um, it's we've. Rec- I know. I do my timings by how many episodes we've recorded. <laughs> so three episodes. <laughs> um, 
but I started thinking about like kind of the the kind of long term response to coronavirus and and how it's gone over the last seven months. Yeah. Um, and just looking back, you can see how how confused and contradictory the the British state's response to coronavirus has been. Um, it's followed this very familiar approach. If you're familiar with other other kind of dealings on on the right of on the right wing of the, the Tory party, it's it's actually a fairly similar response. There's there's cultural elements, there's nepotism, there's corruption, and a kind of general privatization uh, mania around it. Yeah, that is 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 very very familiar. Um, but it's got that kind of traditional Boris kind of flourish as well. I mean, for a start, there's been the proliferation of kind of press briefings and eye-catching schemes and like attempted attempts at kind of portraying a renewal. So mm. we all made fun of of you know Brexit as the you know the great rebirth, but they've genuinely been been harping on this thing for a while even when um johnson got coronavirus and when he came out and when he became a father there was this kind of body of the nation rhetoric that kind mm. of personalized the state of the nation within the body of of boris johnson fuck that would be a horrible place to live <laughs> um and these are kind of surrounded by a load of different themes and slogans and attempted jump starts of a government response that was as I say, confused, contradictory, and probably doomed from the start because they don't have a particular they don't have a particular ideological response to the stopping of the flow mm. of neoliberal neoliberalism has this circulation thing. It's about keeping money moving, especially at the financial neoliberalism is about keeping money moving, keeping products moving, keep the profits going in, and then hoarding the profits when you actually have them. Um, by just going through some of the old press briefings, and it's like it's a Peter Kay routine in the making. Like, do you remember like when this all started? You had um, daily briefings. Yeah. Like Boris Johnson himself was going <clears throat> to deliver daily briefings. Has that <laughs> that's just stopped, hasn't it? Yeah, that's not fucking. Do they, I mean, it? he gave it off to Matt Hancock. He gave it off to Chris Whitty, the the chief scientific officer. Yeah. Robbed that it just for a bit. Stopped, didn't it? Yes. Yep. Um, do you remember the? Do you remember of the slogans? Do you remember um, contain, delay, research, mitigate? Oh God, no, I don't remember. Because there one. was that was how it all started. Oh. That was the grand announcement. We have. Uh, I regret to inform you uh, that we have now moved from contain to delay, like <laughs> it was announcing the attack on Pearl Harbor or something. Yeah. Uh, let's see. There was flatten the curve. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. Squashing the sombrero. F- flat. Squashing the sombrero. Yep. Uh, you had the first kind of few slogans, which was stay at home, protect the NHS and save lives. That was fairly well received. It was simple. It had that three, like basically everybody post, post Brexit referendum, everybody thinks it's magic. If you put three lots of words together, they think it has like a kind of magical effect on people's brains, on people's brains that they automatically do what you want them to. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That, that original slogan turned into the much much funnier stay alert control the virus and save lives Mm -hmm. as if they were on their driveway trying to pin corona to the ground because it wouldn't move its car yep um control the virus that means absolutely nothing so now they've moved on to at the minute they've got hands face and space yeah i like that one that's (laughs) that i think was uh was copied from the spanish government was it um i wonder how much that i wonder how much that cost like, because all of these have to be like focus groups. All yeah. of these people, like who make this up, get paid like thousands of pounds a day mm. to just make this stuff up. 
Um, moving on to kind of like thematic things. Do you remember how for a while, very early on, it was all Muslims' fault? Yeah, because they were um, cause they're you large households. When it was the, f- the first... The first week they had multi big multi generational households, and uh, it was the I think it was the very first Friday. It was like ah, see they're all still going to prayer. Yep, there was definitely that they were all at prayer. <laughs> that was. There were lots of um hmm. horrifying angled uh, shots taken of um of Muslims praying outside, but made doing the angle to make it look like they were really squished together. Whereas if you look from above, they're all nicely spaced out. Yeah. Um. And then let's see. It was a few weeks in. I think it was when you you had the first regional lockdown. I think it might have been after the lockdown ended. That like nationwide, the lockdown started to ease, and they started putting in regional lockdowns. Do you remember how it was sweatshops and immigrant labour in Leicester? Mm-hmm. Yep. Remember that? That was yep. Yeah, that was uh. It was, it was that kind of thing. There was even footage of kind of interviewing um like labourers in these textile shops in uh, in Leicester, and there were you know like factory owners coming up in Range Rovers telling them to stop. Yeah. Like giving interviews and telling them about conditions, the fact that they were not protected by PPE, that they were not able to social distance, but they were continuing to work anyway. Um, other things. Uh, oh, support bubbles. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was uh, that's still technically in place, I think. Yeah. But I think it's just like, yeah, just hang out with one household, which is a much easier way of putting it. You had your eat out to help out, uh, accompanied with images of Super Rishi because he he'd saved the economy. He it's, did save the economy. Now. That's certainly that's uh, portraying the Chancellor of the Exchequer as a superhero yeah. is a very myopic <laughs> thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Moving along, we had the uh, the five color coded alert levels. Do you remember that? Yep, yeah, I remember the and like you know, the terror you, alert. Yeah, and you move this between was, them depending on the like, R level. August September time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the R level, of course, that got announced. Uh, I think a bit before that. Um, that was the thing that everyone should pay attention to. Yeah, um, you can it. still find it. Obviously, it's still a factor, but uh, it, it's not. It's not really. Well, it used to be a hard and fast thing that if it was um, above one, was... that we needed to be in harsher lockdown, and then it's been sort of coasting quite above one for a while, and it's just been like, ah, it's fine, really. Do you remember that, that there were five ironclad tests, five tests to yeah. see whether we could come out of lockdown? This feels like the cultural revolution, actually. There's five tests, <laughs> the five the five alert levels. Yeah. Um, there was the three tier system. That's that's actually that's more recent, but that's presumably not a thing anymore because we're going back into a national lockdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, three tiers that then became three tiers plus one, otherwise oh. known as four tiers, except they didn't want to make it four tiers. No, there were more than three tiers yeah, plus one. Was there was a month three, ago. No, no, we had three tiers here. They had five tiers in Scotland. And then they had two... Mm-hmm. Ex, two. Then they sl- slotted in two extra little ones in our three tier system of tier tier one plus and I think tier three plus as well. They're, you know, they're, it's been garbled. <laughs> so... So there were 5.2 tiers <laughs> in this three tier system. <laughs> yes. Uh, that lasted approximately. When did we talk about it? We talked about it for like four weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, along with these uh, slogans, there were a lot of a lot of fancy promises made because yep. for some reason, this government does not. Although it is, in many ways, a, a catastrophizing government when it comes to you know universities mm-hmm. um, and ethnic minority populations. Um, it doesn't really like the whole catastrophizing this situation. There's a lot of things that they've 
left out that they've said, oh, no, it'll be fine. We can just continue as normal. With, or, you know, oh, don't worry, you can take kids out of school and it will be fine. We'll cover it. Mm. That actually should be kind of treated as a catastrophe, should be treated as a, as a war footing. Again, a, a government and a kind of a culture that actually really likes invoking war culture and blitz spirit and all that, that was absolutely refused to kind of treat this situation as a as a war situation to use any of that of that language, I guess. Well they sort you know, of they the sort of they appropriate, sort of, but like they sort the of did scale of it. They sort of did it first when they shut down the schools. They talked about how harsh this was and how they were gonna do so much stuff to do it that you know they were gonna mobilize this and mobilize that. <clears throat> yeah, I mean well I mean as soon as it became clear that schools would have to close, you would presume a robust, flexible comprehensive education system would have leapt to make sure kids had some kind of remote learning capacity so they wouldn't fall too far behind yeah um they made big promises about how they would get uh laptops and tablets for all kids so they could continue doing some kind of learning and it would you know help them learn at home um so on the 19th of april it's three day no not three days on the 19th of april they announced the uh the laptops uh laptops for kids scheme so Laptops or computer devices would be provided for some disadvantaged pupils in year 10 mm-hmm. who would be taking their GCSEs. Mm-hmm. Um, there was never <clears throat> any specified number of laptops uh, available or a set budget. Um, it would be up to schools and local authorities to uh, give them the numbers and then decide uh, what, what, what kind of their needs were. That would be kind of matched by like met by a private company and the government would be kind of the bridging thing so that's like the the pattern for a lot of these things the government doesn't see itself as a provider the government doesn't see itself as a a backstop it sees itself as linking up different parts of the economy that can function well on their own Mm -hmm. but just need that link up that's very that's very uh cummy's thought Mm -hmm. um so yeah these laptops were made available to as i say disadvantaged pupils in year 10 who would be taking their GCSEs. They would also be available to children with a social worker or those leaving care. Um, and the schools would keep the computers when the regular classes uh, would, were available again. There was also the offer of some 4G routers to help families who didn't have connections to the internet. Um, a few weeks later, Private Eye revealed that the government had contracted a firm called Computer Center without an open tender, handing it £60 million to provide 230 laptops and £6.3 million to supply wireless routers. Uh, By the way, Computer Center's founder is Sir Philip Holm, who is a Tory donor and whose wife (laughs) gave the Tories £100,000 during the run-up to the 2019 election. That's a good investment. get used to me saying that kind of thing. Um, I do like there's a recurring thing that will be happening all the way through this. Of It's like... They, so they need to give money to a company that are going to supply like supply the thing that you know we desperately need, and so they go to like it'll be things like Ralph's shack of PPE or Harvey's big computer well, depot that didn't exist two weeks before. Do you know what I mean? Interestingly just... enough, that a lot of them a lot of them have those kind of names because I mean that was part of what. Uh... I'll, I'll be mentioning it later mm-hmm. on the PPE, but that was part of what um, actually they kind of seem to be portraying as happening that they were going to kind of local suppliers to source mm. this, but it's like you were going to local Tories to source yeah. it from China to go on <laughs> wish.com and buy 48 million masks. 
Um, so yeah, by the 12th of August, um, f uh, it was announced, the Department of Education announced that it was boosting its free laptop initiative for school children uh, and giving out 150,000 more laptops mm -hmm. in the coming weeks. Uh, a week later, uh, figures obtained by the Commissioner for Children's Office showed that just 220,000 laptops had been delivered uh, by that August, despite 540,000 children being eligible for the scheme. Just 37% of eligible children had benefited from the scheme. Uh, 27 multi-academy trusts received just one laptop, <laughs> and a third of those trusts received less than 10 devices. 20 local authorities were accounted were allocated less than 500 laptops including just four uh, with four including the city of london and west berkshire receiving less than 200 um the company computer center then got 27 million pounds more after it turned out that uh these uh, original 230,000 laptops would be insufficient Analysis by the Commissioner for Children's Office suggested that in order to provide laptops for seven in ten, just seven in ten, disadvantaged children in other year groups other than year 10, the government would need an additional 980,000 laptops. Um, by the 2nd October, it was being reported that there were um, there were red lines on the, screen, on the scheme, um, reporting that disadvantaged children at schools with fewer than 15 pupils in self-isolation would not be able to claim free benefit, free government <laughs> laptops. Um, just recently, uh, the 28th of October, showed that laptop allocation for England schools was slashed by 80%. So on the eve of half term a couple of weeks ago, head teachers received emails telling them they wouldn't be receiving the laptops they had asked for. In one academy trust, the allocation was slashed from 465 to 55, <laughs> and another trust saw its allocation cut from 300 to 13. One school leader from the Northwest told the website Head Teacher Update that two of his schools had seen allocations cut from 63 to 14 and 43 to 11. Both schools had high free school meals and pupil premium cohorts. Um, what is even more interesting is that a week before this, on the 22nd of October, as of the 22nd of October, the government had inserted a legal duty onto schools to provide remote education for pupils mm. who were absent due to COVID. <laughs> so this is another pattern you'll see. Um, if private sector provision fails, uh, the responsibilities are immediately shifted onto local authorities, to councils, health authorities and education authorities. Um, uh, the laptops uh, weren't the only school funding that had gone wrong. Nearly £140 million of funding for catch-up tuition to disadvantaged pupils had not been spent, and its use had been curtailed by it becoming subject to a government spending review. The National Tutoring Programme um, was supposed to fund tuition partners, which was, a again, an approved set of companies that would offer subsidised tuition in schools, as well as funding academic mentors to provide focused tuition. Um, Yet again, a few private companies are selected to do these things and are paid a, a shitload of money. But the programme was found to have only filled 150 tutor places and was not expected to be fully operational until the spring term 2021. It was also due to end in July 2021. <sighs> um, yeah, um, Another kind of big scheme I sort outed at various points. Again, these things kind of pop up. They don't ever they don't ever go away. They don't really get quietly cancelled. They kind of just nothing happens with them, mm. and then they come up. A, a perfect example of this is COVID marshals. Mm -hmm. Right? Do you remember COVID marshals being mm -hmm. mentioned? So, 
these were volunteers that were supposed to be out on the streets, out in and pubs and, and around shops to help enforce uh, social distancing rules. It was net, there was never any guidance released on exactly what these marshals would be able to do. Um, and councils actually came out and said they were expected to be providing these COVID marshals, but they received no warning of the announcement and were never expected to receive any funding for them. <laughs> they were expected to pay for them themselves. Um, I, I don't, have you seen any COVID marshals about you? No, but I spend most, whenever I go outside, I'm mainly in the forest. So if I saw a COVID marshal in the forest, they're in a. They're, they're not in the you right would, place. You would, you would just assume it was the Holly King. Yeah, I, I I I see authority figures in the forest, but none of them are human. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, COVID marshals you can kind of make fun of because I mean it's clear that they're not really going to be inside places, kind of marshalling things. It's more for outside for queues outside shops and and things like that, mm. but. Um, that's that you can kind of laugh that off because COVID isn't being transmitted by places where COVID marshals would be. One place uh, COVID is being transmitted seriously is within care homes. Mm-hmm. Now, when lockdown was uh, announced in March, uh, the government announced that they would look to arrange paying statutory sick pay from day one rather than day four um, of uh, the, the care home staff's uh, illness and quarantine. Obviously, uh, conditions in care homes are notorious for being very low-waged, very uh, casualized. There's a lot of care home staff moving between homes, and generally conditions are are fairly bad, despite care home groups making massive profits. Um, The government actually pledged £600 million to what's called the Infection Control Fund in May. Um, Yet again, payments would go to local authorities who would then hand them out to Care Quality Commission approved residences. Um, And the government guidelines actually listed a number of different things that the money was to allow to be used for. But what they did say was that 75% of that money must be used for a variety of things that basically meant staff wouldn't be going around spreading the virus from topping up sick pay so that they don't come in back before they're well to recruiting extra staff, to making sure that uh, proper uh, PPE was in place, et cetera, et cetera. Um, This money didn't end up going to top up sick pay. Guess what? Um, According to the GMB union, um, nine months later, that money has, sorry, according to the GMB union, uh, seven months later, that money has still not filtered through to workers. Hmm. Standard sick pay is £95 a week. Unsurprisingly, when surveyed, uh, 78% of care workers said they would return to work before they had recovered if they had to survive only on statutory sick pay. Mm -hmm. Um, It was actually announced three days ago um, that in Wales, social care staff would get full 100% sick pay from day one. And the policy is still not in place in England. Hmm. So this money is going to local authorities, going to care homes. And then just not the, like the place where thousands of cases are in place. Like apparently yeah. the infection peak in care homes is now higher than it was in like in the spring and the summer. Yeah. And it's still not filtered through. Where's, where's, where's it gone? Where is it? Is it sitting? Is it sitting somewhere? Or yeah. is it not like, where is it? Um, the government's response has been to just, the, I believe, just this week, uh, ban care home workers from working in more than one place by <laughs> law. 
So rather than pay them to encourage them, they've punished them. Yeah. For doing that. Yeah. Um, What's more, even in September, they've added another £546 million to this infection control fund. Again, no guarantee that it's actually getting to the places it needs to. This money is just wiped, just off the books completely. We have no idea where it's <laughs> gone to. Um, and that would be a very familiar response when we move into kind of looking at uh, government contracts around sourcing uh, PPE and other coronavirus services. Yeah. Um, the, gov the Tory government have essentially used the COVID emergency to suspend all transparency and open tendering systems, which logically, obviously, results yeah. in a massive tidal wave of donors and people close to the cabinet and the Conservative Party generally getting jobs. Um, in early May, the cabinet office gave Topham Guerin, the uh, New Zealand consultant for, consultancy firm, uh, they are the firm that rebranded the Tories' Twitter account, Fact Check UK, during the election. Oh, lovely. Yeah. So the Cabinet Office gave them £3 million for communication services, no competitive <laughs> tendering, and weirdly enough, backdated to March. Huh. I don't know why that would be, um, unless there's some kind of... I, 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 I genuinely don't know. I genuinely don't know. Why, don't know. I genuinely don't know what it is. Uh, the government handed out £156 million to P14 Medical to import PPE from China. Mm -hmm. uh, the owner, Steve DeChan, is a Tory councillor in Stroud. Uh, actually, was actually elected as a Lib Dem and then defected in 2018. Oh, okay. But, okay. <laughs> um, this company, P14 Medical, made significant losses in 2019. Um, the deal was also signed in May but only made public in September. Now, hmm. legally, contracts are supposed to be published within 30 days of signing. That just hasn't happened. And there's no legal comeback. There's no enforcement of that at all. It just, nothing has happened about it. Um, uh, another, yeah, another co contract that was um, signed in April, only published recently, uh, £32 million to PestFix, a pest control company with no material assets, <laughs> no PPE history. And in fact, there's a, about five or six more contracts yet to be published for a further £313 million. I would say that million pounds. Yeah. Um, the, the biggest one that's gotten kind of the most uh, headlines, mainly from the Good Law Project, which was something started by, yes, noted fox killer, Jolian Morgan. I think I've gone on record saying Jolian, right? This mm -hmm. this Jolian yeah. was one of the more effective people at fighting Brexit. Yep. If you're looking and at foxes. any avenue. Um, and fo he's, very, he's very good at foxes. But no, genuinely, like, he's been one of the more effective. And he might be the last one of the last people doing these this kind of thing, actually yeah. kind of trying a legal route. It probably won't work, but he's trying a legal route. He's trying something at least. Everyone else seems to have given up. Um, but the Good Law Project have been on and on about this uh, company called Ianda Capital. Mm -hmm. The government gave a £252 million project. It's a, uh, sorry, gave a £252 million contract Iander Capital is an offshore currency trading firm currently registered in Mauritius. Um, it gave them that for face masks that came and were unusable. <laughs> um, they attached to the ears rather than around the head, which made them unsuitable for use in the NHS. This deal was brokered by Andrew, Meal, Andrew Mills, 
who is an advisor to the Board of Trade headed by Liz, Liz Truss. Uh, Andrew Mills happens to just happens to be a senior board advisor at this Ianda Capital. <laughs> um, it's, it was also it was also revealed that in the bidding for this contract, uh, a company owned outright by Andrew Mills, Prosper Mill, had secured the factory uh, Chinese factory to capacity to manufacture these masks in its own right, but requested that the government hand over the contract to Ianda because it could arrange payments quicker. <laughs> just <laughs> um. But yeah, the government have been going about uh, PPE contracts and, and general procurement in this fashion, awarding PPE contracts to a number of firms with little or no history of PPE provision, uh, including Aventis Solutions, who were awarded £18.5 million to supply face masks. They're an employment agency. Um, it gave £108 million to Clanderboy Agencies, which is a chocolate and coffee importer. <laughs> <laughs> And it gave 2.1 million to Double Dragon International. Nice. Now, look, I can understand the rest of it. It is irresponsible to just hand over that much money <laughs> to Jimmy Lee and Billy, <laughs> especially after they got Marion killed at the beginning of two. <laughs> if they can't deal with Black Warrior Willie, how are they going to deal <laughs> with China? <laughs> Seriously, though, they genuinely, they were just a company who were, who were involved in like um, spice imports. Okay, <laughs> just just a spice import company. What was the one that did um, the um the they got the contract and then they just bought a load of stuff off um off Alibaba and then just changed the pictures mm. around to make it look like it was them making. <laughs> I believe actually that was the first one we mentioned. I think that was P fourteen Medical that uh, people went through and found pictures of the uh, products that they had purchased and they were just all on Alibaba. They were just yeah. all on Chinese eBay. Yeah, like. Probably, like, I'm I'm genuinely thinking if you just went on Wish.com and ordered 14 and a half million masks, <laughs> you could probably get 60 to 80 million pounds for them. Uh, I mean, you could do that. Like, you know, that's... I can't be trusted with that. I'd just spend the money again on Wish, just buying gigantic One Piece statues that are badly made. But I'd be able to get lots of them. I mean, you can't use those for PPE, though. You'd have to go with the Weed Goku t-shirts, because at least you can cut those up. <laughs> you can just put them over your face. <laughs> yeah. Just become a being of purest Weed Goku, like you've always <laughs> wanted. Yes. <laughs> so, um, obviously, there was a lack of PPE mm -hmm. in the early days of the COVID crisis. Um, yeah. Luckily, uh, the UK state jumped right on it. They immediately got very serious about all these contracts, and called in Deloitte services to create a crisis hotline, <laughs> uh, to which most respondent companies never got more than an automated response. <laughs> um, speaking of Deloitte, they were also paid to help run the, uh, the test and trace system. Um, it was then revealed, I think in September in The Guardian, that Deloitte was simultaneously, as while it was being paid millions and millions of pounds to run the NHS test and trace system, they were also simultaneously selling other private test and trace services directly to local health authorities. God. And like when I say millions of pounds for consulting, you think it's kind of, oh, that's probably a drop in the ocean. They actually got like quite a lot. Um, they were absolutely rinsing money from hiring consultants. I think some of that was reported that some of those consultants were paid like six or seven thousand pounds a day. Jesus. A day. A day. 
the main people who were running Test and Trace were another kind of uh, private services provision company, um, Serco. They've come in for a lot of criticism uh, for their failings. Uh, they were, I think they were mainly running the call center operations with contact tracing. So if somebody is infected, it's about them providing their details and then telling the trust and track and trace app who has who they've been in contact with in the last like 48 hours mm -hmm. um and that's that's the basis of it it's not working it absolutely is not working sage recommend that about a target of about 80 percent of an infected person's contact should be contacted to isolate within 48 hours um this i don't think this has ever been achieved it's it's consistently been failed luckily the uh, government didn't insert any penalty clauses into um circo's contracts well, so you shouldn't. there's no there's no way of actually getting any money back for their utter failure well no look positive reinforcement always works best with children therefore it should also work best with companies like Serco. yes i know what you're going to say it hasn't worked in the past with Serco, but maybe this time there was one tory minister's testimony i read i genuinely can't remember who it was but it's like look sometimes we don't succeed we don't we, you know it's not all a win 100 percent of the time that was it <laughs> <laughs> Um, it was even reported that so most of these call centers are subcontracted. Um, Serco won't release who they've actually employed to subcontract with mm -hmm. the public's money. I don't want to get all taxpayer alliance about it, yeah. but the public's money. Um, they won't reveal who they've subcontracted to, but testimony from uh, contract trace call center workers um, has been that they're mostly on zero hour contracts. And apparently um, late in the process, they were even bumping their responsibilities up from just taking details to making call center workers uh, give out medical advice and telling people to self-isolate, taking oh, wow. um, uh, symptoms, which according to official guidelines requires medical training. Okay. Like you need to be something of a clinician in order to give out that advice. Yeah, if you're feeling sorry for Serco, because um, they've actually been kind of that, again, that weird half booted off of the Test and Trace app, it's been devolved to local councils. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's gone to most of the track and trace that they've been removed from some of the Test and Trace infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Um but if you're feeling sorry for them, uh, don't worry. They've been handed another fifty-seven million pound contract. Oh, that's good. For uh, more of the uh, more of the contact tracing stuff. Oh, that's good. To run COVID testing to run COVID testing centers, which is not track and trace. It's you know people turning up with symptoms. So yeah. it's fine. It, it all it all it all went fine. And I mean, even uh, Circo's chief executive is Rupert Soames. You recognise the Soames name? Mm -hmm. I recognize yes, that name. you are correct. Brother of Nicholas Soames, former <laughs> Tory MP, and another grandson of Winston Churchill. Brilliant. Uh, an internal email was leaked in June in which uh, Soames said, quote, there are a, f a few, a noisy few, who would like to see us fail because we are private companies delivering a public service. <laughs> delivering is a stretch. Yeah. If it succeeds, Seeds, it will go a long way in cementing the position of the private sector companies in the public sector supply chain. Some of the naysayers recognize this, which is why they will take every opportunity to undermine us. You can't ever say, like, that new Labour way of kind of trying to, to gloss over exact the objectives of these companies, you know? Do you ever remember kind of the attitude around uh, when they were giving out like PFI contracts and something? Yeah. Like, this isn't like the, the 
forget all the fat cat uh, stereotypes. These are just people who want to, you know, it's fair enough that they make a profit from a decent amount of work, just like you do with your job. Yeah. And no, whenever you get these people in private, they're absolute fucking ghouls and mm-hmm. parasites. You know exactly what their objectives are. Their yeah. objectives are to dismantle the NHS are to dismantle public services and charge as much as they can for them. Which, I mean, let's face it, they've basically done. I mean, other than other than the government actually being the one to do it, this is a, 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 Hay- a Hayekian dream. Mm. This is how it should be run. This is largesse. This is capitalist largesse. Um, so a lot of the stuff we've just mentioned, I've just mentioned, is uh, the stuff that's actually been published and that can actually be traced. But an estimated three billion pounds of contracts mm-hmm. have not yet been made public at all. So we have no idea where that's, that money has gone. There's no transparency. There's no judging whether it's a success or a failure. Nothing. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. So the big kind of most expensive line item of the COVID budget so far has been this thing called Operation Moonshot. Okay. Um this thing was uh, f- announced formally on the 9th of September, but they were in that traditional way, details were leaked beforehand to see yep. what everyone thought. Um, essentially, what it is, is mass sustained testing of the UK population. The numbers mentioned are kind of 10 million COVID-19 tests a day by early next year, with the idea that the entire UK population could get tested once a week. 70 million people... <laughs> Uh, 10 million tests a day. This would obviously be a fucking gigantic increase. Yeah. Um, roughly 270,000 people a day at the moment. That's what they've reached. They say half a million. Half a million is the testing capacity. That's how many they could potentially process. 270,000 is how many they're, they're actually getting through. This, uh, this massive increase in testing would cost around 100 billion pounds that mm-hmm. would be compared to the 130 billion pounds we spend on the NHS every year. <laughs> um, so this leaked document um, had slides in it showing that the current testing would increase from 200,000 to 800,000 and would rise to two to four million people a day in December. We are at the 3rd of November. We are currently on 270,000 people a day, <laughs> which is a massive increase. It was only about 25,000 a day, and they really struggled. So it definitely has increased. And I mean, they only broke 100,000 tests a day in about mid to late July. Also, there's the kind of inexactness of that words of those words. They mm-hmm. say, well, we're currently going to be doing somewhere between 200,000 to 800,000. Big difference there. Yeah. Big, big difference when you're only on 270,000. Then rising to two to four million pounds a day, uh, two to four million people a day in December. Well, we're at 3rd of November now, so we'll, we'll see. I mean, the end result of this, the uh, I think what they call the Holy Grail, is a test that can be performed in 15 minutes. Um, Boris actually said it can be performed in 15 minutes. Um, is basically as complicated as a, a pregnancy test or a paternity test, depending on what you, uh, <laughs> what you want to do. Um, and would be able to be yeah, turned around really, really quickly. It would then seem to be a logical extension of that, that you would provide some kind of digital passport that you carry that says you've been tested and means you can attend football matches or pubs and it's yeah. the kind of thing that makes a shudder go through my bones and yep. demeans us all. Yep. 
Um, but that would be the logical outcome of that. Um, the problem is this kind of simple as a pregnancy test in 15 minutes, it doesn't exist. Um, like I say, maybe he's thinking of a drive through paternity test. Um, they mentioned a number of different tests in the report. They're less accurate. They're unproven. They've only been through kind of non-peer-reviewed research by the manufacturers. Um, one test was brought up as being able to be turned around in 90 minutes, but on further inspection by the BMJ, uh, the British Medical Journal, it was revealed to only be the middle part of a larger test that took six and a half hours. Okay. What's more, processing times uh, from testing centres are currently getting worse. Um, they were an average of 28 hours um, last month, and they've increased to 45 hours to turn around a test. There's also potential for a huge number of false positives. If even 1% of that 10 million is uh, a false positive, meaning that you um, don't have the you don't have the virus or you're a false negative that you, you do have the virus and you're you're not told and you get one of these passports, you're still spreading it if you resume yeah. your normal activity. So yeah. it seems a lot of money for actually kind of pie in the sky stuff. But naturally, this was the uh, route the government went because there was also a second PowerPoint leaked uh, prepared by the management consulting firm Boston Consulting Group, which was actually one of the consultants hired by Deloitte that we mentioned previously, um, <laughs> who have been paid about £7,500 a day for the four months of work in preparing this. Um, the documents uh, talk about buying large-scale capabilities from partners such as the drug company GlaxoSmithKline Welcome, uh, sorry, from the drug company GlaxoSmithKline to build a, quote, large-scale testing organisation. Just as an aside, you remember when uh, Dominic Cummings drove to Barnard Castle, where a major <laughs> Glaxo welcome site is is located? And at the time, he did say it was to, quote, test his vision. Yes. So, you know, I'm just saying I see two things wrong here, not one. Mm -hmm. Um under potential partners for increasing laboratory capacity, the documents only list AstraZeneca. And under logistics and warehousing, the documents list potential partners such as Boots, Sainsbury's, DHL, Cuna, Nagel, G4S, and Serco. Um, what gets even worse about the absolutely astronomical money being spent on this thing that isn't really guaranteed to be as effective as, as they say it will be, on September the 21st, it was reported that Dido Harding, head of the Track and Trace program, had said on a private webinar call with the CBI that this holy grail test, while it could be free for those with symptoms, there was the potential for it to be a consumer product for those without. The quote was, I can see a work quote, I can see a world that for that sort of test, that might be a normal cost of doing business to be able to have non-socially distanced activities. Mm -hmm. But that's different from sym symptomatic people who feel like they can always come to an NHS service. That, my friend, is paying to participate in society. Uh, well, that's it. Uh, that's it, isn't it? That's the end point. We've reached it. Mark Fisher was right. We've reached <laughs> the end. The end point of forced marketization of the reduction of all human activity to market forces and profit margins is a digital passport to interact with fellow human beings. No, I don't. I don't know what your problem is. I really. I think it would be quite a, a life-affirming, patriotic thing to queue up for my pub passport. 
for a stamp on my pub passport that I pay for. Well, you'd be getting it. <laughs> oh, no. But also, of course, you'd have to get it every week. I mean, yeah. the number of tests that are done are designed to be done yeah. every week. And I mean, okay, at an outside, you could say it renews every two weeks, but that's fucking dystopian. Okay, but... That's but, genuinely, but, genuinely horrifying. Say I've got my passport, my pub passport, and I've got my stamp because I'm allowed to go to the pub today mm-hmm. because I just got my stamp. How many stamps before I get a free test or a free pint? Is it going to be in line? Is it going to be linked up with Weatherspoons? I think you would have to choose your favourite. <laughs> it's getting you inured to um, choosing healthcare providers by your digital passport it has to be linked with your favourite watering hole. So it's like <laughs> oh. some people have like how some people have a Costa Coffee stamp card for their digital social passport. Oh, Other people have you know Weatherspoons. But then you can have de facto ad hoc cultures form around which club you're a member of. <laughs> don't talk. So like, you've don't got... talk to them. They're Costa. Oh shit! Typical Leon digital passport holder, <laughs> looking down on all us simple McDonald's passport holders. Oh, <laughs> oh god! Ah, oh, it's cyberpunk. <laughs> oh god! I hate all it of this. I hate literally, this. literally cyberpunk. Yeah, I know, but everything looks shit, and no one dresses well. I mean, this is like... I can't help but feel like this kind of thing would have been a bigger deal at some point. Yeah. Like, I mean, I know, look, look we've had a lot... We've had a lot of, like, corruption over the last year. He's, yeah. He has been Tory leader since last July. Yeah. We're not even at 18 months. Yeah. And so far, I mean, we've had, like... Okay, there was the Jennifer R. Curie thing. She got thousands of pounds yep. of public money for what she said she was banging Johnson. She was yeah. having an affair with him. Is anything happened? No, nothing. No, no, nothing's happened about that. Pretty Patel, when she became uh, home home secretary, so she was getting paid by uh, a defence company for a month. Yeah. After she became home secretary, when there was a big uh, defence procurement contract was up, anything happened with that? No, 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 nothing. Um, David Morris, who's an MP, was asking literal cash for questions. He was receiving. He received ten thousand pounds from a Russian energy company to ask a direct question affecting, like, regarding regulations affecting their company. It was investigated. He he apologized. Oh, that's fine. That's 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 just done. Do you remember that fucking the other thing? Um, the Richard Desmond stuff. So Robert Jenrick, the housing minister, yeah. overruled a local council and, and pla- like planning authorities because he had 24 hours to get planning permission before some new Tower Hamlets regulations came in. Yeah. And Richard Desmond would have to pay like an extra 40 million pounds to build this block of flats or something. Like he had the messages on his phone of like Richard Desmond hassling him yeah. to, to try to, to, to like override the regular, like override the planning plan, like get granted planning permission. What happened with that? He's still housing minister. He's still there. Okay, Boris yeah. being Boris was paid by a Russian oligarch to play tennis. No, nothing. Two hundred thousand pounds. Nothing. No, we're not gonna <laughs> we're not gonna do anything about that. The last example of this, actually, I wanted to get it in. So, the vaccine is obviously going to be potentially the way out of this. The yeah. way out of horrible dystopian fucking cyberpunk digital passports to exist. Yeah. Um, the head of the vaccine task force, Kate Bingham, who yep. is the wife of Tory Treasury Minister Jesse Norman. Fantastic. Um, she's a managing partner of SV Health Investors, a US venture capital firm specializing in, yes, you've guessed it, healthcare investment. Uh. Um, 
she was reportedly on a on a during a 160 pound premiere webinar and networking event for women working in private equity reportedly showed presentation slides detailing a list of vaccines that the government is monitoring. Some of the vaccines on that list are owned by public companies and could potentially be investment opportunities, right? <laughs> okay, government corruption, yes. That's insider trading. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not like crazy, am I? That that's insider trading. No, that, that seems like insider trading to me. I think this was like early October, September this happened. Absolutely nothing. Like happened. This didn't used to happen, did it? Like there was. I seem to remember when I was a little and cash requests going on for about fucking eighteen months. Yeah, yeah. And loads of people resigning. I remember various other things about kind of sleaze that happened in the in the like the major years mm. that absolutely dogged that government. But they were seen genuinely as sleazy people. Of yeah. course, like this is the this is the big problem. Of course, you have this construction of sleaze and a construction of how you see ministers. And I think, as everybody's been depoliticized and distanced from their view of ministers, you can get away with a oh well, they're all corrupt, aren't they? Yeah. Without actually seeing the exceptional largesse and impunity that this government has gotten away with over the past year or so. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, do you do you feel like this would have been a bigger deal, or? Um, I think yes. I think it would have been. Um, I, hmm. I think it's like it's the press's fault, obviously, because they don't go on about it every second of every day. They've got other things that they that they obsess about. You know, whether it's that Jeremy Corbyn is doing tropes, um, or shit like that. But it's like they've spent mm. so long now giving the government the benefit of the doubt on nearly everything like a good example would be like just lib- liberal commentators always looking for their favorite tory for example and then it's like this time my favorite tory is matt hancock he'll never betray me oh no he's an idiot and he's corrupt and stupid and horrible oh but this time richie sunak he's the one to put my faith in and you know they do this over and over again because they've got cuz the labor party was so they were so no, they were so othered and outre that they all started making out that the Tories were significantly nicer. And it's like they put all of their hate aimed entirely at the left for so long that I don't think it can go back now. I think that's like... I mean, if you think of it in really blunt terms, what causes governments to be embarrassed? Because, I mean, it's not, as you can see here, in the absence of anything else, it's not sheer shame or embarrassment that force forces like government ministers to resign like i don't know if, if you think of like john profumo who mm. was like having an having an affair with a, a model who was also kind of um who was also sleeping with a, a soviet attache to the the soviet embassy right the reason he resigned it's always they always like give this thing of like oh he was an honorable man he was an honorable man yeah but there's also like there's a material consequence to that honor system to that shame system it is ideological obviously and therefore is not the root cause of people behaving or people respecting like a culture of manners in that way hmm. but there was like a that code has material has material consequences. If he's seen as breaking that code, yeah. he he will not be trusted with other things. His social capital, to use a fucking modern a modern term, goes down. Yeah. And in a world where those interpersonal relationships are important to actually do business, that goes away. But I mean 
you are right. Like, it feels like there is no, beyond that culture of manners, there is no class left. The kind of class that saw civil society and good functioning politics as somewhat of its remit, as its responsibility. You can call them like liberal chattering classes. I, I don't think for a second they were all actual capital L liberals or even small L liberals. Yeah. But they did have a an interest in seeing that certain things were meted out and certain things were were continued. And I don't think that's there anymore. I think that I think genuinely I think the Jolion thing is interesting because I genuinely think he might be the last idiot who's <laughs> actually there defending a particular way of going. He's like he's literally the captain going down with the ship. Yeah. I mean he's put in legal challenges, he's put he's got lawyers on it. He is he is genuinely doing something. But the fact that there's not a larger take up for that, that also that his kind of reputation as a Ramona is attached to anything he does now, yeah, is indicative of the way politics has been transformed over the last five years and, and the way that class who saw it's it's liberal activism as its remit of ensuring that these things did not go unpunished, even by the very smallest of margins. I think that's that's completely gone. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that um yeah. there's definitely there's I think there was probably like a moment that we probably missed where they ran roughshod over the notion of shame and they didn't get punished for it. And then they just carried, and then you know, they just carried on. If you know what I mean, like when they realised that the press would shout at them for a bit, and then they'd get distracted. To borrow a well-used internet phrase, I think it, that was part of the reality collapse. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's because that, that that notion of, yeah, you know, oh fuck, two thousand sixteen can do one. That was a kind of outward manifestation of that because mm. it was cultural, but actually, that again, that 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 collapse had a material effect in that there was no there were no rules there were no yeah. there was nobody left to enforce it i mean like these mps haven't been forced to resign because there's literally no way of reforce, forcing them to resign yeah like parliamentary oversight is just incredibly decrepit hmm. and no one has any interest in in reforming it i don't even think the government would have i think they have probably the mandate now with this massive majority but they don't have any i mean even if they had the desire i don't think they have an idea of what they would do. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Even yeah. if you, it, like, assuming bad faith, I don't think they genuinely don't have any idea what they would do to restore that. If you had, say, quote-unquote, good conservatives back in. <laughs> I just think, like, the big thing to take away from all this, there's a lot of numbers, a lot of dates, and it's like the tip of the iceberg. There's so much you could you could include in this. I mean, if you look on, um, there's Byline Times, which is quite good on that. Open Democracy is quite good at that. Um, and there's various documentations of, of all of these, all of these details, all of these um, cases. I think the big thing to take away is that if corruption like this seems endemic, which it does, it's not mistakes, it's not incompetence, it's intentional. Mm. It is almost ideological, yeah. right? The people this government have favoured, um, various aspects of the entertainment industry, pub owners, pub co's, I should say. Yeah. Um, landlords mainly commercial landlords mm-hmm. they vote tory teachers university staff bar staff students hungry poor children don't tend to vote tory um 
and you can notice like the ideological movement of this kind of thing hasn't just been to shore up its base but to accomplish long-term ideological goals the nhs is now a charitable institution that requires our support through donations yeah it's like and it needs help through voluntary work. Do you remember the seven hundred and that was another scheme that I never heard anything about? Remember the seven hundred and fifty thousand volunteers that ended up with nothing to do? Yeah. Yes. I saw another couple of headlines saying, Oh, we're gonna do that again. It's like, why? <laughs> like, what are they doing? There's no there's absolutely no follow through because it's just that headline. But also has the double ideological kind of objective of making you see the NHS as something that needs to be supported that is a a precarious instrument and not an absolute ironclad right of everybody in this country to yeah. have that free healthcare. It has ended up in the position that, like, <laughs> that what's it, uh, Rupert Soames and private healthcare wanted it in. It's a form of voluntarist Medicare that can be propped up by the goodwill of people without ever hedging their ability to suck up the profitable parts. One of the interesting things is I actually don't think they want it fully privatized. I think they continue to want government money yeah. to prop up and NHS that they continue to parasitize. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's not even like all of this kind of um, this kind of uh, direction that the Tories have gone in. It's not even it's not a new innovation either that Johnsons and and the evil Vizier Cummings have introduced into politics. Like this Tory administration is like a decade old. I keep thinking that people are waiting for the moment when the Tories have their what I would call because of my age their fuel protest moment. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, you know, when Blair, I remember specifically there were fuel protests in 2001 and it was the time when the things can only get better mm. uh, Labour Party, mm. um, when it started to come unraveled. That's when you got the constant negative headlines, the constant negative feeling around the Labour Party. They haven't had that. I mean, it's partially because they've constantly renewed their personnel. So you've got a new you've had three new prime ministers in that 10 years. I mean, the, the second big thing that. I think you could take away from this is that this isn't we tend to treat corruption as psychologically quite a small thing I think the British have always had this kind of uh, post-imperial mindset that they are de facto better than other more corrupt nations I mean when you hear them talking about like paying off policemen in Lagos or you know um, uh, an Italian building not able to get built because it has mafia ties or, or or something like that yeah or trump paying so little in tax yeah. there is a kind of general attitude of oh it's it's so funny isn't it the little countries that's that's what happens in those places but it doesn't happen here it's it's minimized it's made to feel small but i think what increasingly the the level of corruption that is evidenced during the covid crisis is going to show that when this corruption hits really hard it's going to fucking suck this isn't just an unfair advantage to distant corporations that doesn't really affect you. This is paras parasitical behavior. This draws money away from the other things. This is why you get told there's not enough money for um, free school meals for kids. Yeah. This is why you get told your thing's not going to get funded. This is why you get told that your council's going to build a bunch of luxury flats because it has commercial imperatives beyond just building houses, that it has to build houses at any cost. These are the effects of having an actual like kleptocratic system. Mm. Um, and, you know, this... this I know Britain has never had a particularly robust legal defence against this kind of corruption in or out of Parliament, 
But as we said before, what, what stopped it was a class structure that contained fetters on this behavior, whether that was a working class that could undertake strike action in the face of egregious capitalist behavior, or as we've mentioned probably more accurately over the 20th century, was an actual interested activist middle class that held some kind of stake in the regulation of public life, which is an elitist view, of course, and, and not a socialist view at all. But those are those the ideology the ideology and the culture of manners that they held did have some social penalties for breaking those codes and helped to keep some kind of restraint on it. Yeah. And I mean, what do we actually have now? I mean, we have unions that are scattershot at best, that do not have the legal weight that they need in order to actually stop any of this kind of thing. Um, you have a liberal middle class that, and liberal activism generally that's been completely exhausted and probably, I think, probably finished off by a combination of Brexit, the LDPification of civil society by the Tories, and ultimately tying themselves in knots trying to oppose Corbyn. They've got no rhetorical space left. They've got no self-conception outside of we're Remainers and we hate Corbyn. Yeah. You know, we said in our Tory manifesto episode all nearly a year ago now that one thing, that one feature that you could predict from a renewed Boris Johnson administration would be impunity. At the time, we thought that would be because of Brexit and the chance to rewrite laws without scrutiny of parliament and all that kind of stuff. Of course, capitalism will take advantage of, of disaster to advance its aims um, of suspending class or environmental protections or economic protections on the most vulnerable. But the nature of the Tory victory last December has meant there's this certain like acquiescence or mm. crippling even from forces that were not are resolutely not Tory. They're not aligned with the Tory project. This includes the media, um, liberal media or not, and it includes the Starmer-run Labour Party. Mm. You know, if this behaviour is an exception, if it's egregious, and no one hears it or opposes it, did it really happen? Is it is it actually an exception if it's regular behaviour? Um. And I think like what really pisses me off about the kind of lack of opposition is that this isn't the old days when an opposition could just say to, oh, the government's incompetent and expect a general feeling of disillusion to gather amongst the general public for them to have their fuel protest moment. This isn't also this isn't the old days when a media outlet could just point to rampant corruption and nepotism and expect something to happen due to like this deep-seated revulsion yeah. against such a kind of... Um, disintegration of the public sphere or you broke the rules yeah 40 years 40 years of rapacious elites sucking public resources dry it's not new to people it's accepted practice now you're not going to get oh, the horrified reaction the management of emotions that leads to a horrified reaction that is enough to motivate anyone to do anything about it because it's new to people it's just expected they've been driven to just surviving and I mean, going back to the Labour Party, like this kind of thing of expecting that you can just say they're incompetent and, you know, they will eventually start to get the negative headlines. Eventually they will start to ebb and they'll get lose their self-confidence. This is a new political moment. Like everything is up for grabs now. We had a Labour Party that was questioning the basis of economic and social life in this country. And you had a Brexit programme that was on the surface doing the same. Everything is up for grabs now. You can't expect to appeal to established norms and expect, you know, the four yearly reset. You have to have both that politics of specific denunciation of that of that opposition, of that mm. government, and you have to actually challenge their politics 
Tory politics has led them to this point. This isn't an aberration. Starmer has done neither of these things. He refuses to denounce them on any terms. Mm -hmm. And it, I actually think, to kind of end on a positive note, if we're going to abandon the Starmer Labour Party, as I imagine the number of people are going to start doing, it might actually be an advantage that the Labour Party is unlikely to be the site of resistance to this kind of thing. Because Johnson's government has, through its extensive media operations and, you know, massive majority, always has seemed to have has, always appears to have had ideal counter-programming to Labour and to Liberals generally. If resistance comes from somewhere else, somewhere unexpected and untouchable through those traditional means, it may actually stand a better chance. That's us for this week. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us at WDT80W underscore podcast, follow me at BM Bergamo, follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. I love my country. Hee hee da But oh, that war has made me blue. I like fighting. That's my name. But fighting am the least about the fighting game. When Mr. Hoover said to cut my...